such a small story, you can almost miss it. Truth be told, maybe some of you have until right now. (laughs) You know, before it became sacred scripture, it wasn't sacred scripture. It was a story told from mouth to mouth, ear to ear. And you know who told it? The servants told it. Because that's where they heard it. From the mouth of a servant who said it happened like this. It was deep in the years of famine. Our skin clung to our ribs. Sun was already low in the sky, and we were being as still as we could. When you are hungry, do not want to move. And I heard a knock at the gate, and there stood a stranger from Baal Shalishah. And he handed me a bag, a gift, he said. Then he went away. It was food. I knew that right away. I could smell it. I folded the bag into my robe because in a hungry household, there are prying eyes, searching eyes everywhere. And so I hurried to the back of the house, and I opened the bag, and it was was barley loaves and, and grain only a few. But for us, my master, for me, that was salvation. We could eat 10 days, maybe two weeks if we were careful. So I took it to Elisha and I opened the bag and I watched his face. And he pointed out toward the courtyard, the place where his disciples, they call them the sons of the prophets, where they were huddled together. And he said, give it. He said, give it. And I was shocked because that was suicide. I could see it. A feeding frenzy of only seconds and no one satisfied, not them and not us. Why this story? If you ask a room full of church folks to name their favorite miracle, I doubt this one would even make it into the shout-out. As feeding miracles go, it's a modest story. Maybe you've heard about the preacher who thought that her congregation needed to learn more of the Old Testament, more, that is, than Moses and the bulrushes and Daniel and the lion's den, And so she started telling Old Testament stories about every other children's story time. She got to the end of this one when a boy about six piped up from the back of the group and said, oh, big deal. I know one where 5,000 people got to eat and there were only five dinner rolls and two little bitty fish. And that story has Jesus in it. Well, hmm. Kid has a point. (laughs) Why bother with a medium-sized miracle that has no Jesus? Uh, The fact is, it's precisely because of John's version of the feeding of the 5,000, which, by the way, is the gospel story for today. Because of that 
precise story that we end up reading 2 Kings at all today. John's version of the feeding of the 5,000 is unique in many ways. His crowd has not been standing there all day listening. They are arriving at the mountain, a horde of them, and the disciples are not the ones who ask, um, how will we feed these people? It is Jesus who asks. And then, meanwhile, while Andrew is scouting around in the crowd and comes up with the uh, lunch that a boy has brought, it's only in John that it says, and there were barley loaves. Same thing when you get to the end of this story, when the fragments are gathered up of the barley loaves, there are 12 baskets. Now, if you have a Bible with footnotes, you might have a note right there, and it will say something like this. About the barley loaves, see the feeding of the 100 sons of the prophets in 2 Kings 4. The bag of bread dropped off at Elisha's front door is barley bread. It is barley bread. And if you're thinking um, right now, and I think I wouldn't blame you, that seminary professors must not have enough to do if this is what they can come up with, um, you need to hang in with me because it gets more interesting. If we were to take our Gospel of John and we could lay it all out here in front of us, wide-angle lens, okay? And we're going to look at it from beginning to ending, And if we set it here, and here we set out 2 Kings, about chapters 2 through 8, right here. This is what you're going to see. There are seven miraculous signs that Jesus does in John. And they match up, if you look, one to one, and almost in the same sequence with miracles done by Elisha. So the first sign in John's gospel happens at a wedding in Cana, right? Remember that one? The wine is run out in a society where hospitality is critically important. This is a crisis in the household. Jesus tells the servers to fill the jars with water, and by the time they get to the wine steward, they are the best wine of the party. Now check out Elisha's first miracle. He turns bitter water into sweet. Second sign in John, John heals the son of a royal official. Second miracle of Elisha, a sick boy showing no signs of life is healed. Third sign in the Gospel of John, the feeding of the 5,000 from five barley loaves. Elisha's story, 100 sons of the prophets are fed on a single bag of barley bread and grain. We could go on. The matchup continues. Jesus heals a chronically ill man. Remember at the pool of Bethesda, uh, he's been there 38 years. Do you want to be well? You know that story. Elisha heals a chronically ill man, Naaman, a leper. So what's up with this? Why is that there? Is this just John's way of getting his audience's attention? If he can link Jesus to a figure they already respect and revere. It it does something, kind of authorizes the story. 
Some scholars, you know, think that John got this from Jesus himself. That Jesus is the one who identified with Elisha. And there are clues to that. It's a possibility. Jesus tends to associate uh, John the Baptist, arguably his predecessor, with Elijah. Elisha is the successor of Elijah. Elisha follows Elijah on the last day of his life to the banks of the Jordan. And the spirit, the divine spirit that has empowered Elijah, falls on Elisha. Jesus meets John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan. And the spirit falls on Jesus. Like Elijah, John the Baptist confronted the abuse of power in his day. Rulers, kingdoms. And while Jesus does some of that, his ministry is a lot more like Elisha's, reaching out to the vulnerable in society, a widow, a childless woman, a sick boy, a hungry crowd, lepers, people outside Israel. So it's there. Did John do this just to give us a lesson in Christology? He might have but I think he was up to something else. I believe that John pointed back to those old stories, not just for the sake of Christian education in general, but so that we could learn something about ourselves. If you read through the Elisha stories, now, this isn't true of every single one of them, but if you thread your way through those stories and you follow the footsteps of Elijah, you know what you will find? Very often, there is a second set of footsteps in the story. A second role in the drama and a crucial one. And it is a servant. A servant whose actions turn out in that story to make a critical difference in releasing the power of God into the world for the sake of human need. Make a critical difference in releasing the power of God into the world. Think about it. When Elisha wants to know how to reward the Shunammite woman, the nice woman who has sheltered him and given him a room, he asks his servant, Gehazi, what can I do for her? Why ask Gehazi? Well, servants are in the business of paying attention to human need and addressing it. So Gehazi knows the answer. He says, Master, she has no child. And because of what Gehazi sees, because of what Gehazi knows, and what Gehazi names, the transforming power of God is released through Elijah to change her life. Later, Naaman, the Syrian general with leprosy, comes to a point where his suffering is more than he can bear. He is desperate. He needs help. And you know, servants in a household hear these things. I, I almost hate to bring up Downton Abbey. Abbey, it's a very divisive subject, but if you learn nothing else, even if you've never deigned to watch the show, you learn what servants know. They know a lot. They are eyes and ears in the chambers of the household. They are privy to the private conversations, the private sorrows, 
the private hopes of a household. So Naaman is desperate, and there is a servant girl, his wife's maid, who knows something. And she whispers what she knows. There is a prophet in Israel. If my master went to him, I know he could help. So because of that message, Naaman goes. Naaman turns in the direction of God's healing presence. But once he is there, and there's another blockade, he's insulted. Elisha says, go, dip yourself in the Jordan seven times. He says, are you kidding? That muddy creek? I'm not doing it. He's in a huff. It's going to go away. Who changes his mind? Do you remember? A servant. <laughs> his servant turns to him and says, Master, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? Why not do this? Because that servant says the timely thing, makes the connection. The power of God is released to address a man's suffering and transforms not only his body but also his heart. And he worships the God of Elisha from that day forward because of what two insignificant servants said. Make no mistake, these figures, these servant figures, sometimes named, sometimes unnamed, sometimes men, sometimes women, sometimes quite young, are neither silent nor passive. They are agents in a time of crisis, faced with a choice to speak or be silent, to act or not to act, to play a role or not. In a critical situation, they, if they speak, if they act, if they say what they know, if they connect things that can be connected, they help to release the power of God to make change and to meet human need. There's something that we need to understand, though, as we read these stories, or any part of Scripture, seeking clues to our own vocation, what we're called to do in this time, in this place. And it's this, you know, Jesus definitely learned from Scripture. He undoubtedly knew the stories of Elisha, and they very well may have played a very significant role in his life. He knew other stories too, Elijah. He knew the Exodus stories. He knew Isaiah. He knew the Psalms. He prayed the Psalms. He spoke the Psalms. He lamented a Psalm from the cross. Jesus knew his scriptures, and he sought in it guidance for his own life. But you know what's really interesting, especially in the way he relates to the prophets, Elijah and Elisha specifically? He doesn't follow those traditions slavishly, woodenly. He does not copy. Let me give you an example. There's a story of Elisha that I think even the preacher who wanted to tell about the Old Testament probably skipped over. Because Elisha's walking along, there's a crowd of kids, maybe you remember this one, and they start making fun of him and calling him baldhead because he is. And um, apparently he's got a very thin skin about this because he turns around and he curses the kids. And then it doesn't exactly make a connection, but you know what happens next. Bears come out of the woods, etc. Yeah. Um, kind of an, an R-rated sort of a story. 
Jesus never picks up on the violent deeds of Elisha. Jesus leaves the violent traditions of action aside. Isn't that interesting? He does the same with Elisha because you know the story in Luke. It's at the beginning of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And um, he's, the disciples are sent ahead, remember? And they go to a Samaritan town. And they say, Jesus is coming this way. And the Samaritans all close their doors. And the no vacancy signs go up on all of the motels. Uh, and they say, um, I, I think we'll be closed that day. And the disciples come back to Jesus. They're bringing him toward the town. And they say, shall we call down fire? Shall we call down fire? Because that's what Elijah did when he was rejected in a Samaritan town. And Jesus says, no, we are standing down. No fire. No curse. When we read scripture, we need to read discerningly. To honor the tradition is not slavishly to copy the tradition, but to discern in our own time and place how to carry forward the redemptive work of God. And Jesus discerned that it was not by violence in his time and place. In fact, Jesus became the absorber of violence rather than the perpetrator. I think that's important for us now to think about as Christians generally, as churches that are experiencing massive disorienting change on a lot of levels at once. We wonder about our future. We wonder about our future, whether it can be unified or not. We have such big issues that we're wrestling with. It's taking so much of our energy. We wonder if our ways of doing church need to change. So we we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to redesign our gothic chancels and make them work for something else. We feel like we're doing the church of the past for the kids of the present who will then maybe become the not-churched of the future. We've got a lot to struggle with. But here's my concern, that we not try to be more appealing and entertaining at the expense of our servant role amid the need of the world. It is so easy to lose that. Just ask Elisha's servant as he looked at those measly little loaves and thought about those 100 hungry people. Seminary students these days are asking the question, is the way to draw people to Christ and to the church to have a bigger, better, glitzier, rockier, more contemporary, more wired worship? Or is it to lead more credible lives as communities? What would it look like if among our many priorities, and I know there are many, we put at the top of the list to be a community of ethical and compassionate credibility. What if we were to take up the servant's position 
standing there between the press of human need, the outcry for bread, but for education, for accessible higher education, the outcry for even-handed justice no matter where you live, for a police force who protects you and whom you can trust, Middle East of women. Have you seen the things on the web, speaking of the web, which might really help us with our ethical and compassionate testimony? The campaign to teach women to drive. All the difference. All the difference between agency and passivity. Will we take up a position between human need and resources, however scarce they are, and say what we need to say, connect the people we need to connect, open our hands, open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might become indispensable agents in the release of the power of God for the addressing of human need in our time. I can't get out of my mind Maggie Barankitze. She was a school teacher in Burundi during the worst of the fighting between the Tutsi and the Hutu, which was just as deadly and bloody in Burundi as it was in Rwanda. She was Tutsi herself, but she adopted into her household a Hutu girl, and then another, and then two Tutsi children. And eventually, there are five homes of refuge, combined Tutsi and uh, Hutu children who raise each other, who help each other. And it's really hard to teach a kid to kill the one who has become their sister and their brother. The core pattern of our vocation is an old one. It's older than scripture itself. It goes back to stories like that servant told that became our holy tradition. When Elisha said, give it, I nearly cried out. It was pointless. Anyone could see that. But I didn't want to be insolent, so I I pretended to scratch my beard and I rubbed my aching head. Your head always aches in famine. And I said as diplomatically as I could, how? How can I set this before them? My master Elisha said, give it. The Lord says there will be enough and to spare. I had to choose. I called three young men. I gave them the bread. I was so full of doubt they had to find me in the back of the house to show me all the leftover barley bread. Thanks be to God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all 
generations. Amen.